You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 9 of the Hoops Fix podcast. As always, it's been a little while. You know how I like to uh, leave a little bit of a break between these things, um, but we've got a good one for you. Obviously, it's been a... It's been a mad time over the last uh, couple of months. I think the last time I checked in with you via the podcast was end of September. Um, and at the moment, there's obviously all this talk about a, a large amount of uh, money to be invested in the sport. Um, but we decided with this episode to go in a different direction and managed to get the legend that is Steve Bucknell uh, to sit down and talk with us for what ended up being two hours, uh, which was... Totally not the intention. I originally briefed him and said uh, we're going to do going to be forty five minutes to an hour. But as always with these things, you end up realizing there's just so much to talk about, and it goes on and on and on. And even when uh, it started hitting that two hour mark, and I was like, I need to finish up. There was just so much that we didn't cover that I would have loved to have covered. Um, but it was a really, really interesting conversation. I love hearing from legends of the game. You know, their stories uh, are not publicized well enough. Um, and so it was just really interesting. We went into everything, talking about how he first got into playing, uh, you know, his first jump into into sort of National League basketball with Crystal Palace, uh, making a jump to the US, and then uh, college North Carolina with Dean Smith, and then on to the NBA, and, and then his professional career um, in Europe, and then a little bit at the end into what he's, what he's doing now with his club, uh, Lewisham Thunder in South London and uh, and where he's also the uh, coach and runs the academy at Harris Academy Beckenham uh, Harris Academy Beckenham excuse me um, so anyway have a listen uh, as always let me know what you think uh, always want to hear the feedback hit me on Twitter at HoopsFix drop me an email sam at HoopsFix.com leave a comment on the site there'll obviously be a post on the site that accompanies this podcast HoopsFix.com um, and as always, I will request that if you enjoy this, please get onto iTunes if that's what you're listening uh, to it on and give us a positive rating um, and some feedback and a comment that will help us in the iTunes rankings and help the podcast spread far and wide to more and more people, which is the whole point of doing this thing. So, yeah, have a listen. Let me know what you think. Uh, and I hope you enjoy. I'm honoured to be here with uh, British basketball legend Steve Bucknell, uh, obviously an incredibly successful uh, professional basketball career, spent time in, with the Lakers and obviously all over Europe and now uh, he's doing his thing in South London. Steve, welcome, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure Sam, uh, just happy I can share some time with you today. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I've wanted to get you on here for so long, uh, I think that you're one of those uh, people within the, within the basketball community that has got an incredible story but not that many people have heard it. Um, so I literally want to want to go all the way back to the start, uh, and you know, talk about when you when what, what what was it that originally first got you into basketball? What made you first start playing? Um, well, there was a guy named Michael. We were at Tulse Hill School together, and along with our other friends at the time, we played all the sports. We played uh, cricket, rugby, football. You know, that, that year group, we really were into sports and, you know, we all did things together, but, you know, some were better than most in different sports. I know we had a couple of guys who went on to play professional football players from our year, but uh, 
one day I was challenged to play basketball. I hadn't really played it before. And Michael, who was one of the guys, he wasn't as good as the rest of us in football, whether it was cricket. I think he must have went away and was practicing this new sport in the gym. And uh, he challenged me to a game. Uh, obviously, he beat me the first time. He beat me the first time, but that really captured my imagination about the sport. I saw this little guy running around me, shooting shots, chasing the ball. And, you know, we ended up playing for about an hour, I remember, and I couldn't couldn't actually beat him. He was just a lot more skillful than me and had, and had the now for the game because I hadn't really played before. And from then, I, I took the challenge of, of going back the next you know, months, weeks, and just started practice, just started playing. Just started going to the gym, Michael and myself. We just started playing, shooting the ball around. Uh, we had the support of one of our PE teachers who, he was a rugby guy, but uh, he knew a little bit about basketball. He, he liked basketball. So he used to come down, give us the ball, allow us to stay in the gym, and you know, just practice our skills, throw the ball around. Whatever you do when you're a young kid, first time playing, just experimenting and, and really finding out what the game's about, really. And that's how it started for me. And how old were you when that, when that happened? Uh, about 13, 14. Okay. What was the, what was the um, sort of the wider basketball scene like? I mean, were you aware of sort of uh, the high levels of basketball in the UK at that point, or was it just was it not really sort of a big thing um, within within the UK? Well, coming from South London, I didn't really have any idea of of this basketball. I didn't know what scope it was out there, how big it was, how many people were playing. I, I really had no idea in the beginning. It's one of these things you're you're in school, you pick up a new sport, you're just playing it for fun. It was purely for fun. And, and the fact that I enjoyed it, I knew that I enjoyed the game. I knew that I, I, I had a knack. I could feel that, with, especially with my size, I was about 6'3 at the time, I just felt like after a while I could do things that other kids couldn't. If I wanted the ball, somebody shot it, I just seemed to be able to go and get it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It wasn't a problem for me, and, and that gave me the passion to keep going. I had no idea what basketball had to offer. It was only until my PE teacher decided to make a team. He, he decided to make a team, and he called a bunch of us in there. There was about five of my friends and some other people from the school, and, and he said he wanted to start a basketball team. And then he started to speak to us about a friend of his who played for Crystal Palace, I think even England. Uh, his name was Phil. I forget exactly what it was, Phil something. But anyway, he, he played professionally, he knew him. And he said he wanted to, to take us to a, the, the traditional Harlem Goldtrotters at Wembley, whoever it was. And every young kid probably starts, especially in England, probably starts his, his fantasy about basketball after watching Harlem Goldtrotters. It was the same for us. And he took us to a game. You know, we started to practice regularly. And then after a while, he said, oh, no, I want to take you to a real game. He goes, that, you know, that, that was just fun. And to be the honest truth, when I went to the home Goldfeathers, I knew it was a joke. I didn't, I, I didn't really, I didn't see the laugh in it. I didn't see what the, I, I didn't really enjoy it. I know some other friends did, but I, I, deep down, I said there's more to the sport than that. Where's the, where's the aggression? Where's the 
competitive edge. Where's the, the banging of bodies? I knew that basketball just wasn't a guy throwing a bucket full of fluff or wherever it was. Even though those guys were tremendously talented and skillful, you could see that. You could see that, the way they could dribble and do things with the ball. But I knew that, you know, it was a laugh, a laugh a minute, isn't it, when you go to see that. Yeah. So I knew then that it wasn't me. But then he said, I want to take it to another game at Crystal Palace. It was a professional game. Uh, I think Alton Bird was playing at the time. Okay. And he took me to Crystal Palace, and that's when I knew uh, I wanted to play the game. That's when I knew I really wanted to play the game. When I saw that first professional game with Crystal Palace men's team, don't remember who they're playing, but the atmosphere was, it was a packed gym back in those days at Crystal Palace, and I had a little corner seat, and I was standing up the whole time watching the little magician, Alton Bird and Bob Roma and Dan Lloyd and those guys and his brother, Jeremy Lloyd. I said, I still remember him. <laughs> yeah. I still remember him playing. And they were a top team. And then I knew, I go, that's the kind of basketball I want to play. And, you know, it started from there, really. So what were, when was the, so obviously you started playing for the, for the school club, the school team. And then when did the move to uh, Crystal Palace to play happen? Well, I was scouted, really. I was playing a lot of street ball, yeah. going around different places around the neighborhood, just trying to get a game. I didn't really care. And at one, one session, I went down to the old Mallory School, which I think is Knights Academy now, which had a tradition of basketball. And then started to play some, some scrimmage games there. And then I got scouted by uh, the coach of the, uh, I think it was the, the Falcons or the whatever name they were, probably the under-15s at the time. Crystal Palace team, one of the coaches there, saw me playing, asked me did I want to get serious. Of course, I said, yeah, I want to, I want to be serious. Richard Rudd was his name. He was a men's player at the time. Right. I think he was trying to get into coaching a little bit. And he spotted me, spoke to me and said, you need to come down to Crystal Palace if you're serious about playing basketball. We've got uh, some of the best teams in the country. I said, yeah, I've heard of, I've heard of Crystal Palace. I went to a game there, told him my little story. He's like, well, come on down. So it was myself and another guy, Joe Moore, who was actually playing at the same time, who ended up playing for GB also and had a decent career. Yeah. We both went down there and we saw, first when I walked into the gym, the seats were, were pushed back, all the seats were pushed back and they had three courts going at the same time with three different teams. And for me, that was just impressive to see, you know, three three sets of training, three sets of team. It just looks so organized. Yeah. It just looks so organized. And, you know, each court, whether it was the women's, whether it was uh, under-19s, whether it was cadets, you know, they, they, they were practicing. And that really caught my spirit, to be honest. And I want to be a part, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that because... You could see the development. You could see your own development. You know that you're on the cadet team now, but you know you want to get onto the under 19s. And of course, you'd love to be over there practicing with the men's. Yeah, that that was the goal. When you saw 
people like Oldenburg coming with sweats, you know, with their sweats on. Just looking like normal guys about to practice. That that was quite exciting at the time. So what, what was uh, what was junior basketball like back then? Um, you know, if you're going to compare it to today's game, um, you know, how did it differ? And who were some of the sort of bigger names in your age in your age group, age generation? Yeah, well, junior basketball. When I was growing up, is you had a few teams that you needed to play for if you wanted to be known. East London Royals. You had We've lost you. the Switch Cottage, London's Camden. We just lost you again. Sorry, can you just repeat that bit? Okay. So you had uh, Crystal Palace. You had Humphlong with the East London Royals. Yeah. You had an outfit in uh, Camden. I forgot the name of them, but they, they also were known for good basketball, North London and Camden, around that area. Then you had, you know, your Hemels, but it wasn't so many teams. So if you wanted to get on the top team, I think the, the, the way that the league was set up, there's only about 10 teams up and down the country that play National League. So we had to do a lot of traveling, but to be clear, when you got to these games, you got a good game. It's not like it is now where you've got a million and one teams. So it was a proper so National best- League like Back then, it was like a proper national league where teams from the South played the yeah. North. It wasn't split into two conferences like it is now. There you go. Uh, there you go. Okay. So it was a proper. It was a. It was a, a reduced format of teams, but the quality, I would assume, was better. So all the best players, all the best players were were on these teams for the area, and it made games very competitive. Yeah. This is why I remember. I remember. You know, driving to Ellesmere Port. I remember driving to Birmingham and playing games on a Saturday morning. That 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 was my kind of route into the basketball national league level. Once I knew it was good enough, I guess I was good enough because I got selected to play. What um at what age was did you kind of realise? Oh, you know, I'm actually really good at this, and sort of you separated yourself from the rest of the pack. Uh, I never really thought I was that good, to be fair. Really? I'm not that type of, per- I'm not, not that type of person. If anybody knows, you would tell me. Yeah. I, I never really played the game to, to, to be a star or anything like that. I played the game because I, I liked it. Because I liked it a lot. And uh, when I got on the floor, I, 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 I felt good. Yeah. I felt good, but... When I made the England under-15s, of course, I understood that, okay, you, you must be all right. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're playing for, you got selected to play for England after going through the, the regionals and whatever else you had to do back then in selection process. I got through that and then, you know, got up to the likes. I mean, I used to play with Sam Stiller, people like that. Yeah. Peter Scanterbury, Richard Scanterbury. You know, Basil Phillips, a lot of these names you don't know, but they, they were big, like, international players, stars of the league. You had Robbie Pierce, even. I don't remember him. Yeah. Robbie Pierce. He was, he was a big player. That was my generation, watching some of these guys play and being on the floor. Again, I don't think at that age I was, I was really better than those guys. What I did have is 
is the determination and the and the will. To, yeah, but uh, do well. I um. I spoken. I spoke to Roy Packham uh, briefly before I knew that I was going to jump on a call with you, just to just to ask him some questions about about you and everything else. And and he kind of said one of the things that separated you um, from from a lot of other players was your attitude and, and mentality, kind of your, the psychological side of things. Um, like, where do you think that came from? What was there anything in particular that that led to that? I mean, I've seen you say in interviews that it was quite a tough uh, upbringing area where you grew up. Do you think that played any sort of role? Um, you know, what do you? Yeah, think? My, my, fa- my father was a, was a son of a. <laughs> my, father was, my father was a tough cookie, and uh, you know, it reminds me of, of a lot of the reasons why I went to, to Carolina. My dad was straight down the middle, you know. He taught he taught me very simple things, whether you're doing good or whether you're bad. You know, you know you know good from bad and you don't do anything to hurt anybody and anything you do shouldn't hurt anybody. And of course when you do mess up you just des- you deserve to be punished. <laughs> so I learned pretty quickly to keep on even though I, I came from a tough neighborhood and I did dabble in some things. I was quickly shown the right way by my father, by uh, punitive measures, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and then you think that, so, transferred, that transferred onto the court in terms of just making you determined and disciplined? Well, also, talking to my father now as you get older, you realize that my granddad was also a fighter. He was a pugilist. He was a fighter. I didn't know that, that my granddad was a prize fighter. Okay. And... Even my own father, he was he was a damn hard worker, Sam. Even though we didn't have much, he, 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 I could see a man who got up five in the morning. You know, he used to wake me up for paper round in the morning after he's got up and he used to leave and then come back. And then you see him on the couch sleeping by nine, so you know he was working his guts out. Yeah. So he instilled all that in me, that hard work. And if you want something, you have to work hard for it. And you have to sacrifice. So that was in our blood, I think. Well, so on so- a basketball court, it was the same thing for me. Just work hard. If you could outwork somebody, you could always look better than them. Yeah. What sort of uh, what sort of work ethic were you putting in? You know, did you have back then, you know, as a junior player coming up, how many hours, how many shots were you putting up every day? Yeah. Uh, what I do know is I used to come to school and at lunchtime I would go to the gym. But to be fair, in our school, at lunchtime kids were playing football or whatever, but I stopped playing football once I found basketball. Yeah. So I started to go into the gym and the PE teacher let me go into the gym at lunchtime. After school, I would, soon as school's over, I would go into the gym and shoot or mess around for an hour or two hours. And then I would go home, and then probably twice a week, I would go training again. And then another another week in the evening, I would go to another session. So I was actually doing a lot more than I had to, but I wanted to. I mean, I used to find myself down in Flaxman, which was notorious, a rough, rough basketball. But all that helped me, you know, Later on, but I didn't know it was going to help me. But you know, playing in rough environments, playing at the Regal Center, which was the old boys' boys' school, uh, during the week also toughened me up. So I went to kind of all the 
the basketball hard knock places where not everybody wanted to go. <laughs> I don't know how the hell I ended up there, but I was going to these places. Yeah. And and playing scrimmaging with guys. And that's how I really got the reputation in London really of being being a a hard good player because everybody knew I'd go anywhere to play a game. Yeah. Well, and I used to play in places that nobody wanted to play. What were some of the, the highlights of uh, of your junior career before you made the, ju- the jump stateside? <coughs> um, Roy Royce mentioned that there was a game you had against Maccabi Tel Aviv at the WICB at Crystal Palace. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, is that is that is that? Would you say that that was your best game? Can you talk about that if it was, or was it? Were there other 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 ones that stick out? Yeah, we played against Divac school came, young D-back for 16 at the time. Uh, funny enough that our paths would cross again. That's yeah. quite funny, you know what I mean? Yeah. That our paths crossed at when he was probably 16, I, I was uh, probably 15, or whatever it was. He was a, a youth player, I was a youth player. Our paths did cross at the WICB. And uh, we played some matches there. I think, you know, Maccabee, we beat Maccabee one time which was a huge game. I remember in the cricket gym downstairs, everybody was screaming and yelling. You know, this English team was beating Maccabee. And uh, I remember those type of games. I remember losing to Peter Scannerberry in the semi-final of a cup, which uh, wasn't the first time I started prime. Done that before. Yeah. After a loss. Because... I remember occasions like that. I remember sitting in Roy's car. You had an estate, five of us or six of us balled up in an estate, two lane in the back, listening to War of the Worlds, trying to get to a game. You know, and, and, and winning the game, I think it was up north somewhere. So, you know, we had some we had some good wins, and then we, you know, we had some losses. But even the losses, you kind of remember more than the, the wins, actually, for some reason. Would you say that you you hate to lose more than you love to win? Yeah, I don't I don't I don't like to lose games. Everybody yeah. knows that. I don't like to lose games. I mean, I've matured over the over over time, but I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept it. I found it very difficult and uh, to, to to take defeat. Yeah, that's why I didn't I didn't like it, but. Uh, I always took it harder than most when we lost games. For some reason, I blamed it on myself. So then, the move, the move to America. You you went to um, Governor Dummer Prep. Uh, how did that? How did that come about? Like, was it was that a route that obviously nowadays it's much more common that you see British kids heading over to the US? I mean, was it was it a common route exit route for kids back then? Um, you know, oh, Roy, Roy has set up a nice little. Links in the States. He sent Mark, Mark Clark before me, who was a great player. Okay. Uh, he was one of the first. He went to Boston College. But, uh, you know, Rory had previously sent players over there. Don't know how all of them did. I just remember Mark Clark was one because I knew, I knew that uh, he was playing in the States. And Rory sent me, sent me over there to, to summer camp. It was the summer camp he really sent me to. And he knew that some people would come and watch me play. He, the first summer camp I went to was Dave Collins, who was a Celtic legend. Yeah. And uh, he he had a reputation of being a tough, 
a tough son of a when he was a player. So me and him got got caught on. <laughs> he liked me. <laughs> he liked me when he when me gave me MVP. But you know, I always tell the story that when I first went to America, went to camp, I had a fight nearly every day. There wasn't an out blown out fight, but it was like all the best players in the camp each day. Uh, you know, who's this? Who's this English kid with an afro? Doesn't even speak our language. You see, with that kind of attitude, yeah. they 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 were showing me, and I said I never back down. So I remember first first day I got in a fight with probably one of the better players. You know, a little scuffle on the court, not off the court, but on the court we were playing. Got a little bit physical, and you know, Dave Tyrant comes running out, uh, saying, "You two need boxing gloves. We can get some boxing gloves for you guys if you want." <laughs> and we said, "No, you know." After that, everybody's laughing and everything, but. He liked he liked the he liked my aggression. Put it that way. He and liked my aggression, especially on tarmac outside. <laughs> and then was he so was, was the, was the uh, so then was the school that you ended up going to? Were they there and they saw you playing, or like did you get MVP at the camp? Well, no, I had uh, there was, that was one school that uh, liked me. They took me to New Jersey, uh, a couple of the kids, and I wasn't too interested in in the. Those church schools, all the church schools that had the priests and all that. To be yeah. fair, that wasn't my cup of tea. Because coming from England, you've heard so many bad stories about these church schools, even back then. Yeah. And uh, remember, I'm from I'm from I'm from South London, now, so it didn't really. It was a it was an offer, and I liked it. And they looked after me. I didn't. Not, nothing happens to me, but I just had I just had a feeling about. Schools being run by pastors and all that stuff by the church. Yeah. So I wasn't too interested. I went to another camp straight after, uh, New England prep camp, and also got the MVP for that. And then I met this Italian kid and this Tom Tyndall, about six six, this white guy. He'd also come down to look at me, and he brought one of his players, an Italian kid, and. Me and the Italian kid were at the camp, got on like a house on fire. We were friends, kind of straight off the bat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he took me to Revere in Boston, an Italian neighborhood, and I played over the weekend. This was at the end of the, the second camp. And I stayed at his house, and the Tom Tinder guy who was from Governors, the Dummer Academy, he didn't, even, he didn't even hang around. He said, I'll come back for you on Monday, just hang out with this guy. So he knew what he was doing. So I hanged out with Paul, Paul Nardoni's name is. We hanged out. You know, he showed me around the Italian neighborhood, had me playing, which was quite funny in their little Italian summer league, which was quite funny. To be fair, I was like one of the only black players, a lot of Italian guys, you can imagine, yeah. who thought they could play. And uh, me and him went on the court and just killed everybody. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was, and, you know, when you get on with somebody, his family treated me, you know, very well. His mother, his sister, and then they took me to the school after the weekend, which was out out of the city, in the country, a boarding school. And I said, "Yeah, I said I can do this. This I can do." And so then, and I made a commitment to him. Okay. And then, so what, um, what year in high school was it that you moved out for? Like, what, 
Was it sophomore? It was sophomore, sophomore year. year. Okay, so you were there for th- <coughs> you did sophomore, junior, and then senior year. Senior. Did you do a prep yeah. year as well or not? No, I didn't do a prep year. I didn't need to. I okay. was uh, quite an accomplished player after that. How was that? How was of- it? How did you find the transition to America? Like, what what were the biggest differences in the game? Is it the same now in terms of just the athleticism and the speed and stuff? Or, um, well, I didn't really see that athleticism because I was one of the most athletics right. athletic players. To be fair, in that little small bubble where I went to, what what I did see was the guys were a lot skillful. Yeah, you know the guys were definitely a lot more skillful than the guys I've been playing with. But my aggression, my height, my speed, that you just couldn't teach anywhere. So that that fit in quite that fit in quite well with everybody. The next thing was to get the skill. Was to get the skill. And I knew that. So you know, going to America, basketball was on T V all the time. You know, you got household names like Magic and Bird were all over the TV with their Converse canvas back then. I mean, basketball was 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 coming coming out to the sunlight, wasn't it? Really, at that era. Did you with those two guys? Was there any part of you that struggled um, with the transition? Like, were you homesick at all? Or was it was it a pretty smooth transition? Of course, I was homesick. I didn't go out of my room for about two weeks. I mean. <laughs> To be fair, I went to a boarding school. I went to a rich boarding school. Yeah. Where the first day, the kids were pulling up in Porsches and Beamers, and I'm <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, what, what have I done? <laughs> I didn't I didn't expect that. It's very rich to do kids, all their families. Very few black people. You know, I just left the black neighborhood where the only white people you really interacted with were your teachers, yeah. maybe a couple of your classmates. To be fair. That was it. So it was strange for me, but like I said, I was quite focused. I was quite focused on what I wanted to do. So even though I was stuck in the room, looking out the window most of the time for the first month or two, you know, I still had my friend Paul, who was a, a bright-eyed student there. Everybody liked him, so you know, I just had to get out of my shell. Yeah. I mean, the toughest times for me were the weekends where. A lot, you know, 90% of the kids will go home and the 10% of the kids that the parents don't want them. After a while, you realize that. Yeah. This is why they stayed on campus. So, or you're a phone student. There was a couple of phone students when I was in school. I still keep in touch with them. One girl was from uh, Saudi Arabia. I actually still, still keep in touch with her. And the kid was from Kuwait. So you had those type of kids. Yeah. Then you had the, 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 the parents who... Basically, didn't want to know their kids. <laughs> we kind of had our own little goofy little club on the weekend. We had the school to ourselves. It was funny. You know, they'd feed us, but pretty much you're by yourself all weekend. Yeah. And at obviously a young age as well. Yeah. And so, you know, they still made sure we go to bed at a certain time. They fed us. But uh, we had the campus to ourselves. And more importantly, I had the gym to myself. I had access to the gym. So where weekends were kind of lonely for some people, for me, it was quite a fun time, actually, because I just stayed in the gym all day. <laughs> and then we'd watch TV, and, and those rich people would order pizza. I had no money. So they <laughs> order pizza, I'd eat their pizza. That was it. 
And so on the um, on the court with yeah. the high school, did you um, did you experience a lot of success as a team and stuff? Like I, I I've tried to find out information about uh, your numbers and stuff in high school, and I've all I've found was obviously, obviously you're a McDonald's All American um, and you were ranked in the top twenty five players in the nation, uh, but in terms of your actual team record and on-court success and titles and everything else, how did you guys do? Yeah, we won the, the New England Class C. We were a small school, only about 300 people. Okay. So the size of your school would be to determine, you know, if you're C or A or B. We were C. We were a small school. We used to win that win that uh, league, Independent School League, which is... Which is in huge league now. Yeah. It's uh, unbelievable what they've done with it now. But anyway, we were the kings of basketball in that league from that coach, Tom Tindall. This, the guy, after the first year, I mean, he brought me in. We had another guy, Andre Lafleur, Lafleur, who played at Northeastern. I think he's a legend. Talking about retiring him. Then he was at Connecticut for many years. Okay. Uh, as an assistant coach. And uh, I think he's in Providence now. But anyway, lost touch with him. We don't really stay in touch as we should. But, you know, he was my first point guard. So you know what kind of caliber of player yeah. he was. And then we had another black kid. There's three of us. And we just dominated that league. We just dominated that league. Do you remember so what we, sort of numbers think, you were averaging? The first year, probably about 18. Okay. 18, 18 and 10. As a sophomore? I would say. Huh? As a sophomore. Yeah, as yeah. a sophomore, I came in. Uh, I came in. I came in rolling. So <laughs> didn't have any height. I was the biggest guy on the team, six, uh, six, four, six, five. Yeah. In that type of high school environment, that's that's quite big. But then, like I said, we had another guy who went Division One. Uh, Joe Bo- Joe Bowman. Names are coming back now, <laughs> but he, he he got in trouble with the school and ended up getting rid of him. After a year, but uh, Andre, me and him, we just dominated with Paul, the Italian guy who came in. He was a sophomore. We just dominated that. We dominated that. And we dominated it so much that the coach put us into uh, Class A, which were the big schools of two, 3,000. Yeah. And then we played Mount Hermon. I think it was in the semifinals of uh, the tournament. And then we, we, we lost. But... You know, we could have won. We could have played a Class C New England championships and we would have won it easily, but they've been doing that. Yeah. But Coach said our team was that good that he wanted to challenge us, you know? Yeah. And so, so he moved us up. At what point did you start thinking, I want to try and make this, you know, get college scholarship and, and, and sort of have a professional career? Was that on your mind at this point? Mm, not the first year. No? The first year, I'm naive to all that stuff about colleges and... NBA, what would I know about that? I'm coming from England. Yeah, I've just seen it on the TV. I've seen the college games. I've seen North Carolina playing. You know, secretly. You know, I've got I've got love for them, but I never thought it was gonna. I never thought it was gonna happen. I mean, I'm coming from South London. I was just lucky. I was all I wanted to do was graduate, graduate from high school, and maybe come back to England and play professional. That's probably about all I could see at that moment. When did the when did the colleges start knocking? Um, junior year, really. Junior okay. junior year, I I went to five star and got MVP. Okay. 
which not many people know. <laughs> but I went to Five Star in Pennsylvania. I'm sure I'm on their archives list. Yeah. I went there, and I knew that the best players in the country go to Five Star. I don't know how it is now, but when I was growing up, Five Star was the camp. And you only get invited to Five Star if you can play. And you don't get a free ride if you can't play. So when they offered me a free ride, free ride to them means you come and do the kitchen work, but you don't pay. <laughs> yeah. But you serve everybody. Yeah, so you know, when the coach came in and he was like, you know, I've been, been offered a place at Five Star for free. He was over the moon. But I was like, I ain't for free. I got to work in the kitchen. <laughs> he was like, some of the best players ever played the game worked in the kitchen, mate. He was just explaining to me how it goes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I went to Five Star. I remember, I, remember, I mean, <laughs> they had some good players. To be honest, I went there sophomore year. I didn't do that well. The next year, I went back junior year. And that would have been that summer yeah. going into my junior year. Uh, I did quite well. I did quite well. Like I said, I won, I won MVP going into that last year. And uh, everything remember, blew up after that, really. Do you remember some of the, the other big names that were at that camp? Were there any guys that went on to have successful professional careers? Yeah. Players like... Uh, let me think. It'd be hard to think because they how was the best player. <laughs> 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 it's like, it was years before... I would, I would I would tell you like uh, you know Doc uh, Dave Rivers, okay, like Hammond, Tom Hammonds, yeah, you know those guys, Washburn, them type guys were were big big players. In my in my era, uh, all the guys that went there like Jeff Lebo, who ended up playing with, um, I'd have to look at my McDonald's list, yeah, to see some of the guys. Who were there? I can't really tell you their names right now, to be fair. But a lot of the guys that went to Five Star went on to play Division One. Yeah. Division One college board, that's for sure. So when I went there, it was you know forty degrees every day. Rick Pitino came, did a lecture. Uh, Coach Smith came. Go by, had all these great coaches. You got to understand, at the time, I really didn't know these guys that well. I didn't really know them that well. I, just, I knew that everybody was up in the roar when they were coming. Yeah. And the whispers, John Thompson came through. Okay. Coach K. I do remember those guys coming through to the camp. And uh, I don't know how the hell I got MVP, to be fair. <laughs> I, I don't know. What I do know is that uh, I work harder than anybody else. Yeah. That's what I do know. Yeah, I did. Of course, in the games, our team went to the final and all that stuff, and we won and all that. But I never thought I was that skillful, to be fair. But no one could out-hustle me. Right. No one had. No one had desire, and of course, I didn't like. I like defense, and I won't let anybody score. Yeah. Maybe that's what drew them to me. That's the one thing I didn't like. I didn't. I always took that as a personal affront when somebody tried to score on me. So I didn't like it. Yeah. So, so then, I played. So I was I was hustling, and like I said, they gave me they gave me the you know they kept calling me out with all these coaches all the time. So I knew I must be doing something right. 
and then they gave me MVP. And uh, once you get that, then yeah, it was a little start coming in from everywhere. What what was that? Uh, what was that? So, what was your whole sort of senior year like with all the with all the colleges recruiting you? I saw you say in an interview somewhere that you had like over two hundred colleges on your case. Um, yeah, yeah, I had uh, I had tons and tons and tons of letters from from schools giving you scholarships. Some of them they didn't even see you play, you know. <laughs> but they just offer you the scholarship. I also played. With Dana Barrows and Ramil Robinson, who were also in, in Boston at the time, I played in the Boston Shootout, which was a big tournament, like an AAU tournament. We won that. And going into my senior year. So all that, the, the accolades, you know, the Boston Shootout, they bring the best AAU teams from the country. Yeah. Come down to Boston. And the trophy's about as big as a car, I remember. And... Uh, <laughs> Dana Burroughs went on to Boston College. You know, we were friends. We played AAU with Miller Robinson. And then there was another kid who was about 6'8". But uh, I think he was the best of all of us, but he was a nutcase. So <laughs> he, he went to Cleveland, Cleveland College and bummed out. But uh, I remember he, yeah, he was better than all of us. He was better than all of us. He was just a nutcase. And... I know Dana tried to get me to go Boston with him, but I told him I already, I already got my eyes set on somewhere else. And the meal I knew was going Michigan. So, so was it was North yeah. Carolina always was it North was that like always the place <coughs> that you wanted to go? I mean, was there never any doubt? It was always North Carolina. So I never thought I was going to make it. To be fair, I mean, I had letters from UCLA. You name it, you know. I probably had a letter from him, uh, but I didn't really, didn't really sway me until the, the the letter that I wanted came in. The one letter that I really wanted was was North Carolina, and when that came in, you know, I always kept my cards close to my chest. But the dream was to play for North Carolina. I just didn't think I'd ever be good enough for them to to want me. So when when did that, when did that offer come? Oh, it came came probably after the two hundred letters came. <laughs> really, was that, it one of the last ones? It was one of the last ones to come, but it's because I played the tournament, and one of the North Carolina coaches were there. Right. I remember I played the tournament. I think it was Canada, and AAU coach told me, um, "Yeah, North Carolina's here." And Leo Papil was our coach. He ended up being general manager for the Celtics for a while. Okay. I still, still email him now and again, trying to get. If we ever have a team good enough, we'll take it back to the Boston shootout. That's another story. But anyway, he told me, yeah, he's an Italian guy too. So you know, he was very slick, very slick talker. He was like, yeah, uh, Steve, your team, your man finally here. And I was very excited. I must have gave one of the best warm-ups I've ever did in my life. <laughs> I must have went that hard. And then the game started. I went for a rebound, clattered into somebody. I was unconscious. Uh, I wake up on the bench, shaking my head. What the hell's going on? He's like, oh, no, you, you're done for the, you're done for the, for the, for the. I'm like, no, I'm, I can't be done. North Carolina's here. I can't be done. They're like, no, that's it. You, had, you got a hand injury. You're done. So pretty much I was sulking after that. I didn't play that game. 
So okay. I thought I missed my chance. Yeah. Uh, a week later, I got a letter from Coach Guthridge saying, uh, we came down to watch you play. Sorry we didn't see you play, but you, but you, we watched you in the warm-up. You had a tremendous warm-up. We just liked your attitude. <laughs> I was like, a warm-up? And we want to offer you a scholarship. <laughs> it's quite funny, yeah. So you, got, said, a, you got a scholarship up. offer from North it. Carolina based on your warm-up? Yeah, I think you just... He's just saying that something to say, but uh, it's always funny with Coach Guthrie because what's funny is that they never used to send Coach Guthrie out to recruit. That's not his main job. Even I knew that when I got there. Yeah, I was like, it's not his main job. They used to send Coach Williams out and Coach Fogler out. So everybody was laughing at Coach Guthrie, saying you find a damn play. You know, you say in the warm up. <laughs> that was the story. I finally come to find out that it was. It was like Coach Guthrie, you know, he, he was Coach Smith's right-hand man, but he actually really went out to recruit. So they were quite surprised when he went out. Yeah. So he went out, and uh, he found me. You know, they already had Kevin Madden, who was a four-time All-American in high school. My position, I already had Jeff Lebo, who was player of the year in Pennsylvania. So... They were laughing like he went and got the dribbles, you know, he got me. But they were like, well, he's top 25. But those guys were like top 10, you know what I mean? Yeah. Those two were top 10. Kevin was top five. Lebo, you know, was one of the best guards everybody wanted. So they ended up bringing in three All-Americans that year. Wow. Out of that McDonald's 25, yeah. they got they had three of them. What, what was the... So uh... It ended up being a stellar year for them. Yeah. What what was the uh, McDonald's All American that whole experience like for you? <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was quite <laughs> that was quite fun. They took us down to where well, I did two games, the Capital Classic game in Washington, okay. where I went and I met the future president. Or he was vice president at the time, Bush, but I never tell anybody that I always say he was the president. <laughs> so I went to the White House, met met him, had uh had lunch. He met us, and then we sat down in some room and had lunch. <laughs> then went to the game, and then went to Dallas and played the other game, which was fun. They took us on a ranch and rode horses. They just, they just sported us around, didn't they? Took us to McDonald's events, took pictures, met John Wooden. You know, it was just, it was just a nice time. It was yeah. a nice time. It was a nice time, and gave you all the gear, sweats and all that. Couldn't even tell you what that stuff is, but anyway, they gave you all that. And, uh, you know, you made the top 25, but I always laugh and say, Glenn Rice didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> and you see what he done. Yeah, yeah, and he didn't get picked. So it was an honor to get picked at that time. Because at that time and that stage in our careers, you know, in our young, young careers, we were recognized. Yeah. I saw, I looked at that, the 1985, because it was 1985. I looked at the roster there was two guys. There was Sean Elliott and Danny Ferry were the two NBA guys that I recognised on it. Um, yeah, and Tito Horford, Danny Ferry, Tito Horford played in the league for a while. He was a monster. Okay. It's always funny these things because you know you can never see the future. Of course, you can never see the future. I mean, Sean Elliott, Danny Ferry, there's some other guys on there that that. Uh, had very good college career, but didn't make it to the league. I mean, Danny Ferry really didn't make it, did he? I mean, Sean Elliott is probably the main one. Yeah. And Hammonds. I'm sure Hammonds is on it. Okay, yeah, I, I, need, to, I need to look at it again, yeah. Hammonds, um, but, you know, 
Right. So then, yeah. So then, obviously, after the after that, it was it was on to it was on to North Carolina. Um, what uh, what are your memories of, of going into your freshman year and the sort of transition, the step up from from high school basketball to college basketball? Yeah, that, that was a that was a rude awakening going <laughs> there. I mean, again, I I was a player that played inside a lot, and when I went to college, I realized, you know, after the first practice, when you got Brad Doherty tapping on. Tapping you on the shoulder, telling you to get out of his area. You knew that uh, you were no longer a post player. And you know, Kenny Smith. When we first, when I first went there, you had Kenny Smith, Brad Doherty, Joe Wolf. I mean, you had some big time players yeah. on that team when I first went. And you know, I thought I was a big time player coming there, cocky, thinking that you can do it all. And then you go to your first practice and your know, coach slaps you down, then the players slap you down, and you realize this is for real. I mean, Coach Smith was the guy who made that program what it is. And, you know, he had the respect of everybody, all the players, all the staff. We just knew that, you know, this guy knows what he's talking about and he's got the credentials. Was there I mean, any point? Great was, university. Was there any point where you? Was there any point where you were obviously going in as a freshman and you're used to being kind of like the man, and then obviously having to take a back seat for those guys? Was there any point where you kind of had doubts about your own yourself and your abilities, or was it a case of you knew that you just had to sit and sort of and wait for your time? Because um, obviously, you know, your minutes increased no. every year, right? By the time you were in your senior, you, you were. You were yeah, in, I, I think every, every after every practice, after every game, I wanted to quit. Really, first year. Uh, I always felt that I could play. You know, by the time I, uh, I finished high school, I was averaging 30 points a game, 15 rebounds, and who knows how many steals and blocks. So I always felt I could play. The reality was, when I went to university, I realized that I actually couldn't. You know, I didn't want to give up hope. So I continued to practice. And I practiced hard. No one, these qualities never left me. So I think everybody respected that, the way I practiced and how hard I played defense. And, you know, coach would always, always say something to, to uh, bring you back down to earth. Every practice. I mean, I used to go through hell with that guy. That's why, you know, for me to tell you, I have no respect for everything. But he used to be on me. Because, you know, I had to be a little bit flashy. So I could do some flashy stuff. He didn't like that. He he basically broke me. But he basically broke me and then built me back up. Yeah. That's basically what Coach Smith did. Like some old goddamn race horse or something. <laughs> he just broke, broke me down. You know, we had our, our quarrels. And we had our... We didn't see eye to eye, especially the first year. And then I remember... After the second year, I was getting a little bit more time. He asked me if I wanted to leave, and I think that, that's what that's that's what changed it for me. If you want to know the truth, when the bitch says, hey, "Do you want to leave?" I was like, "Hold on a second. You brought me here. You recruited me. I had over two hundred schools that wanted me. And now you're going to ask me if I want to leave. I didn't like that. I didn't like that, and and that was the turning point for me. 
uh, in terms of him turning me into the player that he wanted, that he felt like could help the team. You know, I, I realized then that, you know, he said, you need to learn to shoot. You can't shoot. So I went back to the gym, went back to the drawing board and started shooting. Spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours developing some type of reasonable shot where somebody had to play me. I don't think it's the fact that you can't shoot just ain't got the bottle to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you gain the bottle by getting the confidence and gain the confidence by sitting in the gym shooting. Yeah. So I think for me, when he brought me into the office, asked me if, if I was really happy here, which off the court, I was damn happy, if anybody would tell you. There wasn't no problem about that. <laughs> I had a good time at, at university. Just I wanted to play. I didn't feel alive unless I was playing big minutes, and I couldn't get big minutes there. The more I tried the first two years, the more I felt like I was, I was slapped back. But when you look at it, I mean... We, you know, that, you know, we started Brad Doherty, 6'10", and Joe Wolf, 6'10", Popson, 6'9". Um, that was just the front line. Yeah. And then you had Kenny Smith in the backcourt and wherever else. So, you know, time, <laughs> minutes were limited. Yeah. And you were what, <laughs> six, 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 six guy yeah. could shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so was it, it was your junior year that you started seeing sort of more significant minutes? Yeah, I think junior year, I went into the junior year. I mean, Coach Smith works by, you know, hierarchy and who's been yeah. there the longest and who's paid their dues. And that junior year, I knew that I paid my dues. <laughs> you know, I knew yeah. that I paid my dues. And it was funny enough because Rick Fox came in. And I know Rick Fox probably hated me because I told him, I was like, I paid my dues. I'm not letting any freshmen come in here and take my spot. You know what I mean? I told him straight. Yeah. I told him straight. That's ain't happening. You know, I love you, but this is mine. You know what I mean? Yeah. I worked too, I waited too long, I worked too hard for for this. So, you know, we used to get into it a lot, but I think it probably helped him at the end of the day, but it helped our team. But uh, junior year, they didn't recruit anybody over you, but, you know, as I said, Rick Fox came in, but you're talking about a junior to a, to a freshman, so that's not that much threat unless the, unless the kid's... Michael Jordan or something, <laughs> but uh, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't that good. He was good, but he wasn't that good. Yeah. And uh, I was. I was quite confident in what I could do defensively. I knew I was the stalwart for the team. So right there, you know, you're going to play. Yeah. I saw. Uh, Coaches are already building you up. I read tell it. you that defense is, is is what counts, and now you know you're the best defensive player. So if you don't play now. You're never going to play. Yeah, I read in an interview that uh, with Dean Smith that he said that at this point he'd been, uh, he said in his 34 years that you're one of the best defenders that he's ever had. Um, what is it that you think allowed you to be such a good defensive player? Was it just desire? Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was desire, but I, 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 understood his, I understood his system. And also I could... I could lead the system and teach the system to the other players on the court. So not just the value of me personally playing the defense, I could actually rally the defense. I could rally the whole team to play the defense. Yeah. I could actually get players in position. I could I could switch to any player. 
and guard them, and your teammates can see that. That it's not a problem if, if you know, you get our position because I'm going to be there. That was my role. Everybody understood that, and I took that mantle on to to lead the defense and to, you know, Jr. came in, Jr. Rebich, which had my kind of mentality. So between me and him over the next couple of years, we, we, we dominated that team with our, with our personalities, if you know what I mean, and our desire to, 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 to well, you can call it talk but talk and do it. Yeah. Not just talk it, but to do it. To back it up. We were, competi- we were competitors. We were fierce competitors. And that's, you know, I wasn't the, the most athletic and of course he was, but between us and the rest of the guys, they knew that we didn't like to get scored on. And uh, we, that was part of the team's makeup that we played defense more than I would say more, more than these other teams. We we relied a lot on our defense. Do you have any particular really big standout memories um, or standout games from college? Yeah, I remember when I scored 30 points against Clemson, they tried to f- cut my highlights. I remember that much. <laughs> what I told him, why are you cutting my highlights for? I haven't scored 30. <laughs> he said, he told me, oh, I don't want your head to get too big. I'm like, come on now. If somebody else scores 30, it's all over the <laughs> every damn highlight. They were trying to show defensive efforts on my highlight. Who cut it? North Carolina did? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what the video stuff? No, I just said I wanted them to show more, more of my scoring. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all. I scored thirty points, man. Jeez, I scored thirty points. I mean, I've scored, I've scored, you know, I've scored some points, but thirty points are thirty points. <laughs> yeah. Did you be, before you, before you uh, in high school and stuff? Did you have any, or even in England actually? Did you have any like ridiculous games where you dropped like sixty, seventy, or whatever? Sixty. I scored ninety-nine points in a game in school. He scored ninety-nine in a school game. Ninety-nine points. The whole team scored about one hundred and six. That was the joke. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's crazy. And uh, I remember the coach counting it out, <laughs> and uh, I, I dominated in secondary school. It was a joke. But uh, yeah, I scored. I was having about sixty a game, seventy a game. Oh, we weren't playing anybody that good. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. didn't really play anybody that good. A couple of years back then, you'd be lucky to get, you know, until you start getting to the finals and second finals, we're not going to play anybody. Yeah. And you're not going to find anybody like me, really. <laughs> you know, you may find quick, quicker guys, skillful guys, but I, I told you, I should just get the rebounds and dribble the, the whole length of the floor and score. And yeah. even if I missed it, I'd get the rebound again. <laughs> that was the kind of play I was. I just kept getting the rebounds. Anybody shoots, just get the rebound. Yeah. So, obviously, then when you... So, senior year in college, you graduated. Um, what were the... You know, was it in your mind, okay, now I'm going to look into becoming a professional basketball player? Did you have agents or teams contacting you? Like, what was the what was the process then? Uh, like I said, after senior year, coach... Coach had a process. He had his own process, which he would, you know, he would he would have always have some lottery pick player. I think Jr. was the lottery pick player. He was eager to get Jr. out of there. That's for sure. Uh, so he said, you know, to Jr., you can maximize your, your potential worth right now if you leave. 
Tiara decided to leave, so we invited five or six agents to come in and bid for, you know, whatever they bid for and what they could do for them. Yeah. Part on that was me and Lebo, who weren't of that caliber, but, you know, we were household names. Let's be fair, we played in North Carolina. It wasn't like no local So, you know, we, we had national national attention. So when they came in, we sat with JR, listened to their bids, listened to whatever they got to say. And then coach, you know, gave his pros and cons and what you should do. But then, you know, he asked us what you want to do. I said, I want to play professional if I can. He was like, well, you know, I owe you one because we won the ACC uh, title that year. And like I said, I scored 11 out of the last, what, 15 points. So, you know, he owed all of us one way or the other. Yeah. And he asked me, he asked me, you know, who would you want to play for? Uh, I wanted to play for the Lakers. He was like, okay, let me see what I can do. And he went away and made his phone calls. He got me two, two trials, trial runs to go out and look at these places. One was Orlando, who had just started their franchise, but they had a big North Carolina contingent. So they were quite keen on bringing me down. Yeah. Just to start the franchise. They were quite keen on that. Went down there, did okay. They offered me to come back for the September or whatever it was preseason. But, uh, of course, my eyes were set on something else. The coach would have told me, you know, we got to work out for you in the summer school down there, summer, summer league with L.A. You know, I was very excited about that. Very, very excited. You know, worked out at Carolina and then went down to the summer league again. Busted my ass. I think I averaged some double figures. Probably not a lot, but I think what I did show is what I've always shown is <laughs> I'm, I'm going to lock somebody up. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to play hard as and I'm going to play for the team and uh, I'm going to make good good basketball decisions. So they asked me to come back. I had a choice: Orlando. You know. Orlando or or Lakers, I decided to go back to the Lakers. I think Orlando were willing to uh, give me a deal right then, but I'm pig-headed and I wanted to go to the Lakers. So <laughs> I went, it's just like North Carolina, really. A lot of people told me not to go there. A lot of people. A lot of people told me not to go there. But they didn't know that I've always, you know, in my heart, dreamed about it. Yeah. So it was kind of an easy decision, but a lot of people told me the usual story, you're not going to play, you're not gonna blah, 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 the usual stuff that people tell you. But uh, I felt like I proved them wrong after sitting for two years anyway. But uh, same thing with the Lakers, really. Went out there. I knew Mitch Kupchak before, to be honest. Okay. Seen about Carolina. So there was a Carolina people there. James Worthy was there. You know, he came to pick me up at the airport. I felt good. <laughs> when you got, you know, James Murphy picking up the airport, showing you around. Yeah. On your first day in LA, you feel like you made it. So anyway, I did, I did this summer thing. They asked me back, flew out to Hawaii, uh, probably the hardest training camp I've ever had in my life. Really? In my life. The hardest, 
the hardest, hardest thing I've ever done in my life, really, that, that, those two weeks out there. Those two weeks out there, considering they were cutting players in the warm-up. Really? I was happy to make it. Who was the head coach then? They had us in a gym. Uh, Pat Riley. Okay. I remember they brought us to a gym, no air conditioning in Hawaii for the summer. <laughs> uh, they had these bloggers, and he said, the drill I always use now is to run around the court, slide the baselines. Yeah. So, you know, all the players coming. James looking, you know. James is there, all the big guns and everybody's there. It's the first day of camp. All right, start running. So, coach introduces himself, does what he does, says what to do, then walks out the gym with the rest of the staff and leaves us to run. Now, I don't know about you, but in a gym with no air conditioning in the middle of wire, it gets hot. <laughs> and we started running, and some of the rookies started dropping or trying to slow up. As soon as one slowed up, somebody came in from nowhere and was like, see ya, gone. Guys cut. Coach uh, James is like, if you, James says, if you stop, that's it. If you stop running, because you're done, you're finished in the first day. Mario Ellie was there too, remember him? Mario yeah. Ellie. He was there, and then we had another guy, an old-time player, who had a guaranteed contract for about 10 mil. And he thought he was in. He thought he was in. Well, he stopped running, he got cut. <laughs> So that 30 minutes was 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 decided, and then we started to do. You know, the Lakers had their showtime, and and they were about running. They were about running. I did more running there than I've ever been in my life. And the problem was, when you're a rookie, they always throw you to the front. So if James runs, you know, a down and back three man weave, I'm going to do two. Two to his one. Yeah. Two to his one. So basically the rookies are doing two or three to one or what the vets are doing. Because the vets would do one and they'd be like, really? You know what I mean? They go to the back of the line and <laughs> and we trying to impress and uh, yeah. So what point So you obviously did enough and then were you then called into the office and said, Oh, you know, we want to offer you a contract? Like how how did it work from there? No, we well you go to the two weeks of camp. You're still there, ain't you? <laughs> you don't want anybody to call you. You don't want anybody <laughs> to call you yet. Yeah. They start calling you now, you're done. <laughs> so you did the two weeks of camp, played some games, and then you're still there. You're back on the plane with them, and you're like, whoa. You're on the plane with them coming back from Hawaii. You kind of, you know, I've got James there. He told me, he said, you're all right. You're back on the plane. Remember, they don't want you to say you're on another plane, and you're back home. Yeah. So you're on the plane with him. He's like, oh, you're in a good spot there. You're in a good spot. Came back to L.A., started our training preseason. I thought I actually did all right when I got some run. Yeah. Uh, preseason, some preseason games. But my problem was just I was reliant on the defense. So I always have to go guard the best guys on the other team, which in the NBA is not much fun, <laughs> especially coming off the bench. But anyway, I did that. After preseason, uh, I was called to the office, Mitch called me to the office, and uh, he said, yeah, you made it, you know, you, you know, your money's guaranteed. And that's, and that's the, the main thing, really, when you hear that, that magic word, money's guaranteed. Yeah. You know that, you made it, 
doesn't mean they can't they can't cut you, but it means if they cut you, you still get paid. Yeah. So your contract was guaranteed for that for that one year. Was it a one year contract? Yeah. Yeah. It was a one year deal. They said the you know, Mitch was there actually in James, the Carolina thing. And they they said, you know, keep working. You're not gonna get many opportunities. This team is a great team. It's on its way down, but it's still a great team. And uh Pat Riley likes you because you fucking play defense. Mm. Simple as that. He said, you, you know, you're, you're good on the team. You guard anybody. You're not afraid to guard anybody. You guard anybody in practice. You guard anybody in the games. He just likes that. You're willing to, to mix it up. Yeah. Which I always was willing to mix it up with magic, with anybody. I don't care. So, they like that. I made, you know, I went through that season. And, uh, unfortunately... One big man went down. I'm like, okay. Two big men went down. And then a third big man went down. And then, you know, I had some friends. I had some friends who knew some people, and they were like, well, you're going to have some problems now because they're going to have to replace players. And, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, your, your offense, which I, which I kind of knew, just didn't stand up, does it? Your offense, really. Yeah. Your defense, I don't think anybody has ever questioned that, but uh, this is the NBA. So you lasted... <laughs> this is the NBA. You lasted, uh, so you lasted 18 games in the end. Like, how difficult was it for you when they let you go? I mean, do you remember how it made you feel at the time? I lasted 18 games. I lasted a lot more than that. I just played in 18. Oh, you played in 18 I think games. I lasted up to March. Okay. At like the end My of bad. March, April, or something like that. Yep. I just, I just played in 18 games. Another 30 games, I sat there and watched. Right. <laughs> was that was that difficult as well? Um, yeah, because you got pride. Boys had pride. Yeah. You go from the elation of making the team to just wanting to make it to the next thing is why the f*** are you playing? Yeah. It's always the same, isn't it? You got some pride. Yeah. You go from making it and you've done that to why aren't I playing? But at the end of the day, you know, I was able to see... Magic Johnson playing James Worthy, which to me, you know, two of the best that ever played. Yeah. In your mind, was there any doubt that you could compete at that level? Did you 100% know that you could? You just needed an opportunity? Uh, I felt like I could compete at that level, but probably not for that team. Yeah. You're talking about the Lakers. I mean, Orlando would have been a better level. It wouldn't be expectations and, and, and pressure. It's not going to be like that in Orlando, is it? Or other teams. You're talking about a team that's that's uh, with a team of eighty. Talking yeah. about everybody's watching. You're talking about they're used to seeing some very, some very very good players, ain't they? Did you have any Did you have any regrets at that point about not going with Orlando? Or you were you happy that you'd sort of pursued your dream of playing for the Lakers? Um, I can always have regrets. I've, I've got a regret. I didn't win the lottery, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I decided that uh, you know, not many people, not many people can say everything they wanted. They actually, it may not have lasted, but they actually did it. Yeah. I wanted to play for North Carolina. Well, I started even earlier than that. I wanted to play for England. Play for England. I wanted to play for North Carolina. Play for North Carolina. I wanted to play for the Lakers. 
played for the Lakers. I mean, I can't really look at that now. I can't complain. Yeah. And so I then, can't complain. Yeah, you could have done. You could have done done it another way. Played for another team, but these are the teams I wanted to play for. These are the teams that I sat in front of the team when I was young, huddling, trying to get caught. These are the teams I want. These are the teams I wanted to play for. Yeah. Was it, um, you know, from because from after the Lakers, then you ended up you ended up back in in Sunderland, uh, and I you know I read an interview with you from back then, nineteen ninety ish, and you said that um, you felt it was degrading and it was just a really terrible time for you personally, and you just wanted to quit basketball. Um, how yeah, difficult? How I difficult walk was about. It? I went, went walkabout there, Sam, for a little bit. I have to get cut by the Lakers. It ain't much fun, huh? Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was shocked when I got cut. I was shocked, actually. Really? They called me into a room in Houston and just sent me home. I thought it was disgusting, to be fair. But this is the world of the NBA. Yeah. I was like, you could have cut my ass in Lakers like I could go get my stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to bring me out to Houston to do it. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, when I when I got released, I didn't know what to do. I thought that's it. I'm, you know, I had enough of this. All the things that you say, you blame everybody but yourself. But uh, I ran, kind of ran home. Really, if you want to know the truth, just ran home. I had enough. Just ran home, and then I thought I was going to play for one team. Didn't happen. Ended up playing for some team up north and then I didn't get paid so yeah just went walkabout lost interest in it really but you know the funny thing was you play there and you come back and you realise that you're not that bad a player that the one's worse than you the <laughs> <laughs> one's worse, that, worse than you you're not bad you just okay you just need to work and I realised that about after a year coming back, maybe I should have thrown a towel, but I just hadn't taken a knock back like that for so long. Yeah. It was strange. It was strange. You know, that's the only thing I regret. I should have, I should have refocused myself and, and started again. But, you know, at that time, 23, 24, just money, you want money. You want, it, you want it now, you want to do things now. And I think that might have been the only regret I had, really. Yeah. And coming back to England, that was a waste waste of a year, but I had a good time. Was that when you were playing for Sunderland that year? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I played with my good friend, Peter Scants, and a couple of them, Steve Nelson. So, you know, the only issue was you go from from NBA to the place that doesn't even pay you. You know what I mean? So you didn't even pay you, and that's that's when you got the runaround, the England runaround. Yeah. Were you not? Was it? You mean had you signed a contract with them and they were meant to be paying you and they didn't pay you? Or you mean that they weren't paying you at all and you just weren't meant to be getting paid? I had, I had a contract. They didn't pay. Yeah. They didn't pay. They, didn't pay. they said they were, they were bankrupt or whatever rubbish. They strung us along for a long period. I mean, it was only because. I like the people I play with that I kept playing. Yeah. And plus, you know, I did have some money. I wasn't totally broke, but I had money coming in somewhere else. 
So, you know, Lakers are still finished paying me out, kind of. Yeah. And I, I went along with it. I went along with it, you know. I went along with it. I don't know why, but I went along with it. How did you, did you find that? We actually won the WICB that year. <laughs> oh, really? We won a trophy. Yes, we took five. We called the Magnificent Seven, man. We took seven guys down to Crystal Palace and won the tournament. Unbelievable. <laughs> None of us were getting paid. <laughs> who was I that? Against, who were you playing against then? In the like, who were the other teams in the tournament? Uh, some couple of English teams, a couple of teams from Europe. It wasn't as big as the tournament had been before. Yeah. But uh, we had a couple of teams from France, lower teams. Just the fact that we we won it with seven players <laughs> was uh, amazing enough. And I'm talking about seven players and six of those could play. Yeah. <laughs> what? Seven were just there to catch a breath for somebody. How did you how did you uh, how did you find the level of competition in England? Was it was it easy for you? Yeah, it was easy. It was easy. It was uh, felt like high school again. To be fair, you could pretty much do what you do what you wanted. So I knew the level, the level, you know, back then, like, you had one American or two, man, they were the best players. Just after playing that level, and, and after playing at that level, when you come back, yeah, it was just easy. It was easy. Because all the things that you've seen that used to get done to you, you could now do with other people. <laughs> you know, after, you know, practicing against Magic Johnson and, and Byron Scott and James Worthy, you think uh, some old... Northumbrian guys gonna do it. I mean, please. So it was it was quite easy. It was quite it was quite easy. I mean, the only good team back then was Kevin Cadle's team, Kingston, I think they were called. Yeah. Now they they had some good players. They had a good a good setup. But you know, if we'd have been paid, we probably could have beat them because the team that they put together in Sunderland was like I tell you, had the all time great Peter Scant so yeah. on the team. Russ Saunders, one of the best guards. You had, uh, what was his name? Was that Connecticut? And he got busted. What was his name? Clyde Vaughan, who's a very good player, played that pit. Very good scorer. Yeah. So there weren't no scrubs on that team, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they had a Canadian, I forgot his name, about 6'10". Yeah. And they put together a good team, just couldn't pay him. So what? So did you all just stay because you enjoyed playing with each other? Well, a lot of those guys had married, got girlfriends up there. Right. So they were hooked into it. The Canadian guy, I'm sure, you know, they were probably helping him out some way. Yeah. But for some reason, we all, you know, once you get to December, after December and all that, everybody probably like, well, what's the point? Just finish it off. Yeah, and I don't think I would dare do that now. But uh, at that time, I had found a place where I could actually feel good about my kind of basketball game. If you know what I mean? Yeah. On the court. Yeah. I get you. Twenty twenty something points again, and you feel like this ain't that bad. Yeah. Stuck up for you, and you can move on. Yeah. And so then next year, you ended up in Germany, right? Yeah. So, do you have an agent that at that point that would get you contracts and stuff, or like how how did it work? I never really, I never really believed in agents. I believed they never get me the job. They had the money. Okay. 
So I knew a couple guys, uh, talked to JR's agent, and he knew some guys in Europe. So basically, I just contacted these guys and said, you know what? The first guy who finds me a job can get the 10%. <laughs> And so these guys came back to me and told me that a former a former coach of England and a former England player were playing somewhere. And they were looking for another player. So I was like, better stay in England. So which who, who was that? Danny Palmer and Joe Moore. Okay. And at that time... Nobody was taking English players as, as using them as farm players. I mean, that wasn't even <laughs> <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. We didn't have any players of that caliber, did we? Yeah. Be able to do that. But uh, I was pretty good, I guess. So they offered me a contract. Of course, I wanted more. But considering I wasn't getting nothing at Sunderland, this was a step up. <laughs> But I knew it was, but I knew it was a gateway into Europe. You know, I didn't know that much. Yeah. I know if this one works well for you, uh, you'll be able to secure some employment other places. Of course. Quite yeah, easily. Course. So you took because, it. Because you know Germany wasn't one of the top top nations really back then. They were probably it may be it may be the same now, but I heard they come probably you know five or six around there, but they had good teams. So obviously you went to Germany to kind of showcase your skills uh, with the hope of getting, yeah. a, con- with getting a contract. Um, and then, you know, what? how how was Germany for a start? Because obviously that was your first experience playing anywhere that wasn't English speaking and everything else. Uh, yeah. And then from there, like, you went on to France, right? Yeah. Germany, uh, Germany, the streets were clean. I'm giving that much. <laughs> the streets were clean, very organised. Uh very organized league. I think it had some very good teams and you could see that it was, you could see the growth. You could see it was growing. You could see that even back then that they wanted, that you could see that people had aspirations of making it a top league and fan support was good. Fan support was very good. You know, the the backing of the council, I don't know what they call them there, but you could see that was all there. Everything was in place. Mm. They had sponsors, we had cars, and they even had a couple of big teams, you know, back then, Bayern and yeah. Berlin. But, uh, you know, going there, <coughs> we had a very good, very good season compared to what they've had before. And considering that they brought an English guy to be the American, you know, we got to some cup finals. Yeah, they always gonna lose to the big team, but we got some cup finals. We had a very good, very good record in the league, and again, I was able to continue my development as a player, which I realized is just ongoing, ongoing. I got even better in Germany. To be fair, I got even more confidence. I was able to play uh, multiple positions, point forward, kind of there. Okay. And of course, Germans, they got their training method, so I was quite fit. I was quite fit. We had a good, a good, uh, trainer. Yeah. 
So obviously I'm conscious of time, so I don't want to I don't want to keep you yeah. too much longer. But uh, so you know Europe. So you played in France. You obviously had stints in England, Italy, Greece. Um, Hold on one second, sir. Yeah. Shane, where are you going? Oh, okay. Oh, I've seen his mum this morning when that kid was coming by himself. Right. <laughs> um, obviously, what your memories of Europe? Were there was there any particular year or country that stood out for you that you preferred over others, um, or even on the basketball court that you felt you were more successful than others? That it kind of like that you treasure more than any of the others. And, uh, yeah, I'm just on the, the phone. I've been on the phone. You leaving? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll catch up with you. Okay, but it looks like it went okay today. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Right. I'll catch up with you on that. I'm just finishing up this interview thing. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Greece. Greece. I love Greece. To be fair. I mean, I married a woman there. Jesus. Oh, I was really? there for six. Yeah. Yeah. My my ex ex now. My ex is Greek. Okay. I went to Greece and uh, this is when the Bosman ruling came. Okay. And uh, to be fair, I paid more money there than I ever got with the Lakers. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Because that Bosman ruling came down, that means the teams in Europe could now take European players as part of the as part of their domestic, yep. you know, setup. So you could have two Americans and you could have two European players. Yeah. So from going from you know, maybe a dwindling career as an American, because, you know, the players are getting better, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. And now, I was actually uh, an asset to somebody. Yeah. You know, somebody could always do with a good defender. <laughs> <laughs> so, I went to Greece. They gave me a very big contract for two years. I thought, uh, I thought, what the hell's going on here? But anyway, it was a very good deal. Yeah. Of course, I, I I took it took it with I took it and ran. I mean, they had an American coach. Are you comfortable I knew the sharing coach figures? Before. Huh? Are you comfortable sharing figures? I, I read in an interview that you said uh, that you wrote. I think a piece for the Independent where you were talking that you had a contract worth three hundred fifty thousand at one point. Well, we're going to it's, it's it, roundabout right. Yeah. But uh, it was all right. Yeah. Yeah, I keep everybody guessing about that one, so I can use it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was around there, it was two years, <laughs> so you work it out, yeah. so it was good, it was a very good deal, it was a very good deal, and uh, you know, going to Greece is one of the top, the top countries now, so I've gone right to one of the top countries where I was floating around in Germany and, and France, you know, they weren't the top, so now I've been flung into the, one of the top leagues who flooded with NBA players, former NBA players, that league was. Yeah. And they're paying big money. So it, it was it was an exciting time. I felt again valued as a player. It was all over the news there, all over their papers. You know, people knew who you were as you were walking off the plane. I was like, hey, what's this, America? <laughs> uh, you know, I never really got that exposure since America until I went to uh, Greece. Yeah. A very very big into their basketball at that time. At that time, it was huge. And so crazy. I went to a Yeah, crazy crowds. Huh? You have a lot of crazy crowds there. 
Oh yeah, they 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 spitting on you, showing throwing stuff at you. They they anarchy at the games. It was uh, but at least you felt you're in game. You know, you yeah. felt that people took interest. Like I said, we did go. I went to Iraklis, which was a team that had a, a, a good tradition. Never really broke into the top two because it's always Panathinaikos and Olympiakos. Really got all the money, but you know, with the with with the the influx of uh, Europeans, a lot of teams felt like they could challenge these guys. You know what I mean? If they put the right team together, yeah. And because the, those two top teams just always had the best Greek players and the best Americans, so you could never really take them on. But with Bosman, I guess a lot of teams felt like, hey, we can now take them on. Yeah. So I went there. Uh, my wife was actually playing for the first club, Heracles. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed my time there. I loved the, I loved the travel. The only travel to Athens, really, and I lived in Thessaloniki, so the travel was easy. So then, I also and, uh, I wanted to ask you about your yeah. time in uh, with London Towers as well, um, and just like the state of the BBL, the professional league back then. Like, how did it differ to today, and and what are your memories of of your time at the Towers? My memories of the Towers are playing at Wembley Arena, and and being on Sky TV at seven o'clock at night on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah, what would you give for that? Now, I mean. Basketball, you felt like, well, this was before I went to Greece, actually. We were playing in the, in the, in Europe, in the Euros, and, uh, going to stadiums, you know, seeing your old friend playing in stadiums, and they had owners, owners who seemed to, to understand entertainment, to understand, you know, that you had to spend money to make money. Yeah. That understood all all the things that I felt were missing from the game. You had six or seven owners brought it all at once. The expertise and all that in the music industry. You had guys from the Leopards. I mean, it was a good time. It was a good time for the game. It was a good time for the game. You had the exposure on Sky. Sky was up and coming. You could see that Sky was up and coming in terms of sports delivering. Sports entertainment on TV, the quality of players seemed to be, well, the quality of Americans were definitely better. The quality yeah. of American players, and, and then you had some, you had some decent, you know, strong, strong English players who carved out a career for themselves. So I think the league was a lot different than it is the last go around when I came back and what you see now. Yeah, but I think that all that that was all about the old the, those strong owners, those strong owners who wanted to have that professional look, that professional feel. They wanted to turn it into entertainment. They spent they spent a lot of money on having us have our games, home games in Wembley. That tells you all you need to know. Yeah. Do you do you follow the yeah. BBL now still? Huh? Do you follow the BBL now still? No. No. No, I follow it a little bit. I mean. I saw some of the games, the productions, at some of the gyms. It just felt like it's, it's really, it's gone back. Yeah. It's gone back to, to, to the dark ages, really. Yeah. And I felt the quality of players, 
you know, I, I'm never going to watch something that I could actually still be playing in. <laughs> you know, and it is that bad that if I were to go train for a couple months, I could play in it. Yeah. So I lost interest for a while. No, I still, you know, I still paid attention to the scores. I saw Fab having a great, great run with his team. You know, built his teams to mimic himself and had great success. Yeah. But he also had no competition. He probably say he did, but you know, he didn't have another team kind of doing it like he was doing it. Yeah. In terms of playing that aggressive D, that tempo style, and having some quality. So your transition, so, your transition into coaching. Um, I seen you said it was easy uh, because obviously you were playing until until such an old age that it was easy. Like the, yeah. it was like you were a veteran presence, so you were already, already passing out the tips and stuff when you were playing. Um, why? Why did you want to coach? What is it about it that drew you to it? I wanted to coach because I came back in the summers. <laughs> I came back in the summers and I went to my old stomping ground, Crystal Palace, and there was nothing there. Yeah. Every year I had to come back. I had to work out with Luau Deng and Adju and Ronnie and those guys at Crystal Palace. I was like, where, 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 what do the kids do over the summer? Where, where's the camps? Where's the Where's the youth ball? Where, where is it? This is the home of basketball to me. It was Crystal Palace. Yeah. So, you know, of course, I'm from there. I'm like, what's going on here? I said, if this was the case, how the hell would I have made it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So every year I came back, I said, you know what? If it all, or when it all ends, I really want to come back and give something back. I really want to come back and find another Steve Butler, a better Steve Butler, a more, <laughs> a more skilled Steve Butler. And it's got to be them out there, because I came from nothing, so there's got to be guys like that. Yeah. And I really wanted to, to tap in, tap into our community and, and give somebody a, a chance to experience what I experienced, and it didn't cost me a penny. It's hard work. Yeah. And I really wanted to do that, so I started my basketball camps. And that's when I brought Coach Smith over. I said, Coach Smith, there's untapped potential in England. That's what I told him. You know, there's, un- there's just untapped coaches. Lots of guys like me running around. He was like, oh, okay. He was interested in that. So there's guys like you running around. Maybe we can find one or two of them. Yeah. So he came to my camp, and Coach Guthridge came. I built up the camp. During the camp, I tried to instill some of the stuff that I learned. Nothing new that I brought is the stuff that I've learned. Yeah? I've learned this stuff. And now... I learned this stuff, and now I wanna I wanna give it back. You know what I mean? Yeah. If I can, some way. And, and then I realized. Sorry. Then I realized, you know what? The coaching ain't that bad. It ain't that bad. I can actually. I actually felt after playing, I was like, "Well, this is the closest thing you're actually gonna get to it again." Yeah. And I had some success with it. At lower levels, so I said to myself, you know what? Let's 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 become a coach. Just get those qualifications. Let's uh, see that when you finish, if you can actually put something back into the game, not just okay, but maybe maybe build a a club or build a team or something like that. I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. To be fair, I just knew that I still had unfinished business with the basketball. 
Do you think um, that you do you think that you've uh, in your years coaching you found anyone that you think could be the next Steve Bucknell? You think you've coached anyone which has the you know the level of talent to go to you know play at the highest level? Yeah, I think I've, I've come across Gilchrist. I mean, Gilchrist is one of the first ones. Yeah. Robert Gilchrist, when I saw him, I was like, you know, God, why can you give me that body? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's the first thing I said when I saw him. I said, God, if you didn't give me that body, I could have made millions. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you, remember, you know what Robert Gilchrist is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Robert Gilchrist. Yeah, yeah. He's in Germany. He's built like Pippin. He's built like Pippin. I mean... Yeah. You know, he's an absolute and then, athletic freak. You know, they, 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 you know, Cavell. There's been Rowell, but the problem is, just haven't had the right setup, the the, the the right setup to really, to really make a difference and help these guys. Mm. I think we're still continuing to build that infrastructure for them because there's, you know, there's no infrastructure here. Yeah, and also. To break down some of the, the mentality of the, of the young ones, their, their, their mentality is wrong. Their attitude, some of them, you know, having Cavell at 17, I could have done a lot more for him if I'd have had him at 14. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, we had to just get Cavell just to, to understand work rate and the importance of it. That's, that's what we struggled with much is to show him you actually have to show up and you have to work. Yeah. And I think, especially for him, just those two things, you've seen that you've got a great play just by working. Yeah. And showing up and keeping your mouth shut and doing what you're supposed to do. And that's before all the skills and all that other stuff. So, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of young guys. I've had guys, I've had guys at my club, guys on the streets, I mean, there's a guy named Chad could jump way higher than Rowell. He said, "No way!" He's like, "Yes way." <laughs> he said, "He makes Rowell like a, a kindergarten the way this guy could jump." Yeah. But he, he he just didn't want to listen, and we just didn't have the resources to really turn him around. He was one of my first first players when I started in Lewisham. I mean, he had a, a 50 inch vertical, if not more. Really. But. Uh, couldn't, couldn't, you know, didn't have, what, what am I going to show him? A little club basketball? This is what we got. This is, you know, these kids need something to, to see, something tangible, somebody to look at, somebody to, 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 to keep them going. I know people talk about that, but I think it's important that these kids have, have, have clubs or systems or people in place where they can say, yes, I need to be like that. I need to, I need to do that. Yeah. Because well, that, without it, all they're doing is looking at the TV. Because they, you know, I can I can I relate to somebody in America. I'm not American. Yeah, yeah. On, on that, know, that's on why that. it's good that they have Luau Deng now. People like that. You yeah. know, it's good that they have them. On that note, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you know, I've had conversations with John Amici about Amici about the same sort of thing. Where you know, do you feel um, kind of underutilized by the federations in the sense that? In a way, like you're here, you're doing your thing in, in South London with Lewis Thunder and, and Harris Academy. Um, but there's, the federations don't make much uh, in terms of profiling you or providing you as a role model to these kids. Um, do you feel like you could be used a lot better than you have been? Well, I, I think I've been the one who's gone out and tried to make all this happen. 
confederation. They've not come to me. I've been the one. I've been the one that's put myself forward to run their regional teams. I've been the one that's put myself to, to run their national team and have more success than they've ever had. So, you know, I've done my bit. I'm not going to say who's supposed to come to whom, but this is what I do know. Yeah. If you go to any other country, they're going to use their resources. Yeah. They're going to use their players of, of, of who've achieved something in the game. They're going to use their players a lot more than we've used our resources or our players. Yeah. For some reason, they don't like to use the resources that they have. You know, I've always been the one who's tried to, to, to put the olive branch out to work with different people because basketball to me has no color. It has no color. It, it, doesn't, it, does, it doesn't matter. I do, I, I'm in basketball because I have a passion for it. Yeah. This is it. I've got a passion for it. It's something that I can't get rid of. I've tried to turn my back on it. I've tried to say forget it, but I still can't. It's unfinished business. Now, whether I will ever get the chance to finish it, we don't know. But I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying because what we're doing now is is we're destroying destroying the, the game that I love. I think we can be doing a lot more and for the kids, for the for the sport, you know. I think we do a lot more. I'm sure a lot of people can say that. But I just don't think we're even scraping the surface of what this game actually has to offer in terms of professionally, in terms of youth, in terms of anything you want, women's. We're just, we're just, we're just scraping the surface. What do, you think of the biggest, the what, what do you think are the biggest issues that's holding it back? Well, it's always... Uh, everybody goes money first. Yeah, everybody says money, but they throw lots of money at it. Yeah. My, my thing is who you're throwing the money at. You know? <laughs> who you're throwing the money at. This, this isn't everybody can pick at each other and pick at everything. As I said, you go to America, they use people who know what they're doing. People yeah. who have uh, qualifications, expertise. In this country, we seem to, to not really want to do that for some reason. You know, yeah. so you look at the structure, look at the people in place, and then you throw the money at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's that. that, that that's, I don't. I don't know. Anybody has different opinions, but all I know is you got people like Amici, you got people like Ronnie, you got people like Peter Scanterbury. They're, they're doing hardly nothing. Yeah. They're doing hardly nothing for the sport, but I, I know that these people are the ones that made the sport. <laughs> people. The ones that actually did the hard work. Yeah. What are these other guys who, uh, yet to show me some real qualifications? Yeah. I mean, you go to you go to Spain, you go to Greece, you see all the former players. They, they're involved. They're involved in the federation. They're involved in developing the game for the next level, for finding new kids. It's very hard to figure out what exactly is going on here. You got some people representing basketball. Uh, well, maybe we shouldn't say what we should say. Like, not represented anywhere else. Yeah, the, that's a shame. That's a shame. The uh, you know talking about uh, the kind of the state of the game and what could be done and everything else. Um, 
you know, I've sp- we, we're, we're going to do a piece on it, which hopefully by the time this, this audio piece goes live, the, the article will go live. Obviously, you have a facility now um, in Lewisham uh, where you've got a, a warehouse that's been um, done up to put in two courts, I think. Um, yes, two courts. Can you talk a little bit about kind of like how, you know, that's the holy grail is the facilities issue, you know, and what is it that's allowed you to, to get that? How has it happened? How did you go about doing it? What's the process been like? And what, what, what difference has it made to you as a club? Well, the, the, the difference for me is that I've had a local authority who has seen the good work that we've done has now, like anybody would do, back people who can do the job. Now, we started with two people at the club. And we've built the club up over the years. It's just because of volunteers and people who have passion, just like me, people who want to give back, people who have been involved in basketball and they've come back to basketball because I've asked them to come back and give it one more go. Yeah. Now, we, we, we were scrimping and scraping, hiring out facilities. And, you know, a couple, three, four years ago, I looked at it and said, this is, this is not the way. This is... This is not the way everything you get in, you just give back out. You don't, you, don't, you don't have any flexibility on times. You don't have the amount of time you want. So, of course, you need your own facility. Now, one of the mothers who sent me a she was like, well, there's so many warehouses, so many places just abandoned. You know, couldn't you turn one of these places into a gym? I said, yeah, but, you know, who's going who's gonna to back that? Who's going to pay for it? Funny enough, a year later, uh, we were approached by the, uh, the Sarah Canal Sports Foundation in terms of their regeneration project. And they really wanted to build up the awareness of basketball in a, in a particular part of the bar where they were thinking about doing this regeneration. And they brought us down to a warehouse, and uh, we slipped at the warehouse, walked inside, it was a piece of Oh, you can't write that. But anyway, it was just, it was, you know, it was an empty... Rundown warehouse. Yeah. Now, I walked inside and I said, perfect. It's the first thing I said. Perfect. It's rundown. You know, there's nothing in here. Nobody wants it. We can use it. The only problem we're going to have is how we're going to find the, the money for a floor, a basket. And this is all I wanted. Everybody was talking about fancy shower heads and all that. I said, no, no. <laughs> we just need a court and a basket court and a basket and I'll, and I'll be a believer. So, you know, people's having grandeur plans about, you know, fitting out new, new uh, refurbishment, shower rooms and all that and canteens and this and that. I'm like, yeah, that, that's good, but we're a basketball club. We just need a basketball court and some baskets. Lucky enough, we knew somebody in the, in the council and people, you know, talk to each other and they, they know that, you know, Lewisham is, is really trying to get this project off the ground. And we were given some funding. You know, we took the funding. And, again, people wanted to buy this and buy that and buy this and buy that. I said, no. What I want is is to get down, lay the court, lay the court, get some baskets up. So we were able to do this. So we found the empty building. We We put the basket down. We got the baskets, got the... In two courts, and then somebody said, "Hey, we need to do some lights." <laughs> need some lights. I said, "Lights is right there." Oh, I forgot about that. We need some lights again. That's another project. We 
got some lights. You couldn't have normal lights. I thought you could just have normal lights. Yeah. That shows you what I know. But you can't have normal lights, can you? So we have to go get these these lights that uh, I guess they they give off a lot more uh, energy and be able to do. We got the lights in, so we scrimped and scraped and did what we had to do. So we had our court. Once we had our court, I, I actually believed again. I said, "We, we, okay, this is viable. We can make this happen." And since then, we've been working, adding bits, adding the, the changing rooms. Well, not fancy changing rooms, you know, adding showers, adding toilets, and we've we worked with another another sports table tennis who also looking for a venue because we laid the courts long way so we had another side that we wanted to use. Yeah. We wanted to keep that but you know we couldn't we just couldn't we just can't afford it. We just can't afford it. It's not sustainable. So table tennis have come in. Another another sporting club like us has been around. A lot of volunteers, a lot of people are doing it for goodwill and passion. And now we're we're working together to try to make this this building work. So how much does the whole project cost you? Well, it's over. To lay everything down, I'm sure it's about over 150. 150, okay. Yeah. And what? Floors, lights, changing rooms, refurbishment jobs. And to, and to be fair, you know, we, we've been lucky enough to, to get applications to, to beg, a lot of begging. I love going to meetings and showing them, showing the people that, yeah, it costs a lot, but, you know, we can we can utilize this to, to touch a lot of lives, a lot of lives. A lot of young people's lives can be changed, a lot of use. You know, right now we've got wheelchair team, women's team, men's team. Okay, they're not, they're not at the top level, we know that, but it's an inclusive club for all in the bar and anybody else. We've opened up the basketball court to a lot of different partners and we're always willing to talk to people about using our court. If we use it in collaboration, we're working for the good of basketball. We've not, we've not turned anybody away. What this do- is what I wanted for Crystal Palace. This is what I wanted when I first started to come back in the summer. A place, a basketball home where you just go. Anybody can go. Anybody can get a game at some point. Yeah. Sounds amazing. What difference has it made to your club since you've had it? Well, we've got more practice time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we get more practice time where, where the kids are getting better. Our younger teams are, are, are very strong now because of the contact hours. We're able to, to signpost people to a home. You know, we've been able to attract some more volunteer coaches, people who want to get involved in the community. I think it's only going to get better. But, you know, moving from one side of the borough to the other side, there's been some difficulties. Of course, when you, you're making an omelette, you've got to crack a few eggs. So, <laughs> you know, we've lost some people. People have come in. People have gone out. Uh, we've had some snags. We're learning the neighborhood. We're learning the people we're working with. But at the end of the day, it's all for the good of basketball and good of these kids because... They need somewhere to go yeah. on a regular where they can count that there's going to be, you know, something there for them. Yeah. And I think that's what, that's what I'm leading up to is, for me, is that this is what kept me straight, kept me on the straight and narrow, is having that home, that Crypto Palace home, 
where I knew if I go there, there's going to be boss people there. There's going to be like-minded people. There's going to be people trying to, to, to progress in life. There's going to be people trying to do positive things. Yeah. Whether they make it to the top or not, it, it doesn't really matter, you know. My job is to, to make sure that when people do excel to the program and are able to go to that level that we can provide something for them. Yeah. Okay, so we're coming to the end. I want to shoot some, some quick-fire questions at you just to finish up. Um, yeah. So we'll start with, who is the best player you've ever played against? Michael Jordan. <laughs> nice. Uh, who's the hardest player you've ever had to guard? Same answer. Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say has been the highlight of your playing career? I guess scoring those 11 points in the last two minutes for the ACC final against our old enemy, Duke. Yeah. Considering the year before they beat us and I was crying in the toilet and everybody was laughing at me. Well, not <laughs> laughing, but they just thought it was a little bit dramatic. Uh, to come back the next year and to, to be able to show some bottle at the end of the game and win the game was a very sweet moment. Very sweet moment for me. The highlight of your coaching career? Highlight of my coaching career? Probably being Spain, I yeah. think. You know, the under-18s, taking on Spain and, and beating them with the team we had and the way we beat them, uh, I, was, I was quite proud of the guys. I was very proud and I knew that was, you know, ended up being the climax of that, that two-year group well, I thought were very special and deserved, deserved the top eight position, but uh, it's just the way things panned out. But uh, that, 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 that was a, a great win. It wasn't just me. It was the team, Carl Brown, the staff. You know, you probably had, I think we had uh, Blood on there on the sidelines doing his bit, so it was, it was just to beat a team the caliber of Spain, because, you know, they, they said, come on, man, when they play England, everybody's laughing, they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I think that shook them, I think that shook them up a bit. <laughs> and then who is the best player you've ever coached? Best player I've ever coached? Oh. Best player I've ever coached, for me, Terrence. Oh, really? I, I rate Terrence very highly. He's in the Philippines and, right now, uh, yeah? Yeah. A lot of people don't realize to me how how good that player was in terms of of dominating the game and sapping the will from a team to win. I mean, you got him and you've got... I'm not saying it's him, but I hold him up there with the Steve Nelson's kid. Luke Nelson, yeah. Yeah, I think Luke is also a baller. I call those ballers. They're gonna, they, 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 they just. Yeah, I gotta put Luke Nelson at the top because what he did against Bosnia, to be fair. Yeah. That one year, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, he's he's a baller. He's a winner. He's a winner. He's he is a winner. winner. Yeah. He's a winner, and uh, if your life is dependent on it, and you ain't out there playing, he's not a bad person to have. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to, if you want somebody to bring it to the game, who would you say are the uh, the top up and coming players 
under 18 right now that you would say to keep an eye on? Um, well, you got the kid from West Minister. I forgot his name. What's his name? The jumper. Um, whew, I remember his name in a minute. Denzel? Yeah, I like Denzel. Uh, I think he's untapped potential. Yeah. But I've been saying that to him. Well, I haven't been saying it to him. I've been watching for years and, uh, I think he's a lovely kid, but I think he's underperformed. I think he's underperformed to what he really has. Um, I like the kid. You know the name more than me, the kid from Bristol. The Dwayne. big one. The big one. Yeah. There's, yeah. Oh, there's, there's Dean Williams and there's Dwayne the guard. And oh, Dwayne. I love Dwayne, but he's not an 18 anymore, is he? Uh, he's a 96, so he might be 19 now, yeah. Uh, D- there's Dean, yeah. uh, Dean Williams is 96 as well and there's uh, who's the other kid from Bristol I'm not sure ok no, those are the only two I, I know if you're going to start talking about them you talk about Thomas but yeah. you know I think Thomas Thomas is uh, time's running out from him time's running out mm. and then what I, mean, uh, I haven't seen I haven't seen all the players to be fair yeah there's a kid in uh, that plays for Malcolm Lee Oh, is that uh, no up in Preston? Preston, yeah, six six, about six six. That's Carl Carey, maybe. Yeah, Carl yeah, Carey, he's yeah. he's got potential. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a there's a lot of kids. I haven't seen a lot of them because they're all spread out now. And a lot of them used to play in London. They've moved. Yeah. But uh, I think you got Carl Weedle. Yeah. Uh, Okay, and then what is your favourite memory from your international career playing for England GB? Uh, my favourite memories? Probably playing with Coach Laszlo uh, that last year. I felt like we we did win some, beat some good teams. And then I'm just playing in England generally was fun. I, I, I always love playing for England. Yeah. And then to be fair, I mean we've taken some licks. We played the Russians. I mean there was a stage there where we played Russians, Italians, and we lost all of them. But it, it was great for me just for us to go out there and compete against them. Yeah. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with this question: What do you want your legacy to be from the sport? How do you want to be remembered? I'm going to be. Remembered as, you know, the first player to play in the NBA. You know, I think I deserve that because that's what I've done. And I've opened, not opened, I've just let other players see that the sky is the limit when it comes to sports and basketball. The sky is definitely the limit. And I want to leave some type of program. That's what I've been trying to to leave a legacy of a, of a of a program, don't want my name on it. I just want to leave something behind for basketball. Yeah. Whether you know, I would I'd love to to say to see Lucian Thunder or London Thunder when we change. Um, have a men's team, maybe a professional team, and then have the underbelly of all the youth programs in place, up and running. For 20, 50 years, I'll be happy. Yeah. Awesome. To say that I was a part of that. Awesome. 
Well, look, Steve, I'm sorry for we were, we've overrun a little bit. I know we've gone on a little bit longer than I planned to, but uh, it's been so interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time, and thanks for for sharing your your experiences uh, with the rest of the British basketball community. It's much appreciated. No, I think you know, setting the record straight, letting those younger guys know that there's there's people out there, not just me, you've got Carl Brown, pioneers, people like that, who who are still continuing to try to make a difference in the game. You know, you maybe don't hear our our name as you used to, but there's there's so many guys out there like me, former players who are grinding it out for the sport trying to do their best and we still believe in it that's the main thing I want to share we still believe in it awesome thanks it's very a much fantastic and, uh, game <laughs> <laughs> hopefully uh, yeah we, we will speak again at some point in the next few years and, and, and check in with how all your plans are going uh, for a part two maybe yeah great no problem Sam thanks alright cheers Steve sharing, sharing this afternoon with me seems like it's been the whole afternoon <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been a while sorry <laughs> Awesome. All right, no problem. Have a good one, man. Take it easy. I'll speak to you soon. Alright. You are listening to the Hoops Fix Podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos, and more.